you're not in the great outdoors, we're thinking about it. Kender Outdoors. Come on into the camp house and make yourself at home. Well, it's our last time to get together in 2023. We'll say goodbye and then hello to a brand new year in just a matter of hours. Hey, I'm Billy Kinder. This is our camp house. Thank you for dropping by. We sure do appreciate it. Front door to the camp house is brought to you by an incredible product, Fortiflora. It works for GI upset. All of our dogs suffer from GI upset from time to time, and Fortiflora fixes that. Learn more about Fortiflora when you drop by the website, Kinder, K-I-N-D-E-R, KinderOutdoors.com. We're going to relive a conversation with one of my favorite guys, Lefty Cray, on the show today. We lost Lefty a few years ago, but we still have his wisdom and humor and history on tape. And we'll take a look back at that conversation today. I know you'll enjoy it. Deer season winding down or over in a lot of places. And I think most of us when we head out are looking to shoot the right deer. Well, how do we go about that? The great Ray Sasser can help us out. Afternoon shadows were long when the nine-point buck stepped out of the brush within shooting range of the Central Texas Tower Blind. My wife, Emily, was the designated hitter, but it was my job to evaluate the deer and give her the green light. We were looking for management bucks. On the ranch we were hunting, a management buck is at least three years old with subpar antlers. The nine-pointer fit the bill, but I was really hoping for an older buck. As daylight faded, the deer started walking down a faint ranch road. I gave Emily the go-ahead, and she used her rifle into position and began tracking the buck through her scope, just waiting for him to stop and present a stationary target. That's when I noticed a second buck that had just stepped out into the road from behind a bush. I glanced at the second deer and noted his spindly eight-point rack and just assumed, without a critical look, that he was very young. The two bucks were walking toward one another on a collision course when the nine-pointer left the road and cautiously circled around the other buck. Shoot the eight-pointer, I whispered, and my wife shifted her attention, performed her duties admirably, and dropped the buck where he stood. An examination of his teeth revealed the deer was five years old and about as sorry a specimen as an adult whitetail gets on this particular ranch. He was an ideal buck to remove for management purposes, but I might not have determined his age had I not spent hundreds of hours hunting, photographing, and watching how whitetails interact with one another. The nine-pointer gave ground to the eight-pointer because the eight-pointer was older and it established dominance in the whitetail pecking order. Why is it important that a hunter be able to age live deer at maximum rifle range? Because most bucks don't reach their full antler growth potential until they're at least five years old. Depending on range condition or whether the deer receives supplemental feed, their antlers may peak at age 6, 7, or even older. It seems a shame to shoot an outstanding young buck before he has a chance to reach his full potential, and likewise before he has a chance to spread his superior genes through the deer herd. It seems equally shameful to take a young, outstanding buck and leave an older, unimpressive buck to do the breeding. That's why so much emphasis is placed on being able to determine a live buck's age, and you can't ask them to see their driver's license. Having hunted white-tailed deer from the Canadian River to the Rio Grande, I can say without reservation that deer look different in different regions, and their appearances may even differ from one ranch to the next. The same buck even looks different at different times of the year. When range conditions are good, the deer are in excellent shape, 
and they look older. They look younger after the breeding season when they're run down from chasing does. Here are four clues to use in field judging the age of a white-tailed buck. The first is body shape. Young bucks have immature bodies that are shaped like does. They have delicate facial features, slender torsos, and legs that appear long and slender. This is true of yearling bucks and two-year-old deer. They start filling out by age three. Even at four, their backs remain a straight line. At age five, bucks are fully mature and both their stomachs and their backs will sag slightly. From now on, the deer's legs appear too short for its body. Another clue is head and neck. Young bucks have tight skins on their faces only in full maturity, which is age six and older, will the deer's skin sag under its chin like the skin of a mature person. Bucks begin exhibiting the swollen bodybuilder-looking neck at about age four, and a muscular neck should be very apparent in a five-year-old deer. The swollen neck results from rubbing antlers against trees and brush. Elevated testosterone levels contributed to the swollen neck. Fully mature buck often develops a distinctly Roman nose. The patchy forehead gland on a mature buck appears thicker and darker than on a young buck. Now you look at the tarsal glands. These are the glands inside each hind leg at the knee. They're barely noticeable in bucks younger than three, but become bigger and darker as the deer matures. Darkly stained tarsal glands are a particularly good indicator of age during the breeding season. Finally, you look at social interactions. Young deer will usually give way to an older deer. Fight may break out if a buck relocates to a new area, which frequently occurs during the breeding season. But dominance is generally well established among bucks that know one another. Dominant bucks will go out of their way to make subordinate bucks give ground to them. They may walk a hundred yards out of their way just to make another buck back down. The dominant buck often does not have the biggest antlers, but he's usually the eldest and often outweighs a younger rival. You'll notice that I never mentioned antler size in my aging clues, yet antler size is the only assessment most hunters ever consider. That's Ray Sasser. This corner of the camp house brought to you by Calming Care for the overbarker, the overjumper in your life. If that's your dog, give it a try. Calming Care. I'm best angler Mike McClellan, and when I'm not in the great outdoors, I'm thinking about it with Kinder Outdoors. Hi, I'm Corey Mason, CEO for DSC, inviting you to the 2024 DSC Convention and Sporting Expo. Again, we will be at the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center in Dallas, January 11th through the 14th. This celebration of conservation, education, and advocacy work is enjoyed by outdoors men and outdoors women from around the globe. Do you want to hunt Alaska, Africa, Scotland, or even just down the road from home? The DSC Convention and Sporting Expo will feature outfitters from every spot you can dream of. Fine art, clothing, jewelry, gear, and terrific opportunities await you and your family this January in Dallas. Nightly banquets, fabulous auctions both in person and online. Raffles for dream trips and gear. The 2024 DSC Convention and Sporting Expo at the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center in Dallas, January 11th through the 14th. Get more details about the auctions, banquets, hotels, and more at biggame.org. Ken Kirkaby needs to be in your deer blind, camp house, or favorite fireside chair. 
an outdoor author that understands and lives the outdoors. In Red Stick 1, Florida game warden Virgil Clary takes off his badge to track down a killer in the wilderness. Christopher Camuto of Gray's Sporting Journal calls Red Stick 1 a tightly written novel of pursuit and redemption. A pleasure to read. Ken Kirkaby's books are gritty, realistic, and action-packed. The Tournament, Red Stick 1 and Red Stick 2, all available on Amazon. Get off the beach and into the action. Enjoy world-class Costa Rican sport fishing with Carib Sea Sport Fishing, Marlin, Sailfish, Roosterfish, and more. Inshore, offshore, overnight, seamounts. Carib Sea Sport Fishing will work with your group to customize the perfect trip. Half day, full day, every day. Your next getaway is the best ever. Take a look at catchafishincostarica.com. Catchafishincostarica.com. Weatherford Truck Equipment has been supplying premium truck accessories and equipment since 1997. Chip Knees and the crew at Weatherford Truck Equipment are pros that can totally equip your farm, work, or town truck to totally suit your needs. Flatbeds, grill guards, bumpers, bed covers, toolboxes, hitches, running boards, or any custom fabrication that you can scheme up for your truck. Weatherford Truck Equipment is located at 2620 Ranger Highway in Weatherford, Texas, just 20 minutes west of Fort Worth. Visit online at weatherfordtruck.com and take a look at the exceptional quality in our truck accessories and customized metal fabrication. Ranch truck, service truck, special purpose truck, it's all at Weatherford Truck Equipment. Contact Chip and set up an appointment to talk over your truck accessory or custom fabrication needs. Weatherford Truck Equipment, 2620 Ranger Highway in Weatherford. Crappie anglers, tired of tying knots? Hey, Wally Marshall, Mr. Crappie here to tell you about the all-new Add-A-Hook by Bullet Weights. The Add-A-Hook is designed to put a hook on your line without using any knots or cutting your line. Hold the Add-A-Hook next to your fishing line, then wrap the line five times around each side, pull your line into the clips, and bam, you're ready to go, and it will not slip. I can tie a double crappie rig in 30 seconds when it takes up to six minutes to tie one with all the knots. Add a hook is made of stainless steel, no rust, flexible, and tough. Mr. Crappie and Bullet Weights has made it better, faster, and easier for crappie fishermen to get back in the water catching more crappie than ever. Bullet Weights has a full line of Mr. Crappie double mental rigs for trolling and vertical fishing. The Mr. Crappie Troll Tech rigs are designed to troll in shallow waters and heavy cover, keeping two baits close together without hanging up. Also, don't forget Mr. Crappie Slow Troll and Double Drop Crappie Rigs. Pre-tied with number two hooks, double swivel weights, and eight-pound line. Tie one on today. Look us up at bulletweights.com. God bless America with freedom to enjoy the creation and worship the Creator. This is the Kender Outdoors Camp House. We're revisiting a conversation with a fly fishing icon, Lefty Cray, on the show today. We sat down to visit on a beautiful spring day in a spot that was tailor-made for a conversation with Lefty Cray next to a beautiful East Texas lake. Well, Mr. Cray, Lefty, That'd be better. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time today. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, what a beautiful setting out here in East Texas. And uh, you could fish anywhere you want to in the world. I can imagine being want, want, wanting to be anywhere else than you are today. No, I'd, that's why I'm here. <laughs> it's, 
Absolutely gorgeous. How, where did the love of uh, fishing, just fishing, begin for you? At what well, age? I'm 84, 85, actually. I'm so old. I remember when men wore tattoos and women wore earrings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started, my father died when I was six. I was born and raised in Maryland, and we lived in an urban area. And you didn't have any, most of anyone didn't have any money in those days. But you could hunt and fish, right. particularly fishing. And so I really started fishing at a very early age. And then when I went to high school, we didn't have much money. We were on welfare. I had uh, two brothers and a sister. And uh, what my wife, my mother said, you know, if you can find enough money to get your clothes and food, you can go to high school. In those days, when you were a young kid, you could get away with work, and they didn't have the law of laws they have now. Anyway, uh, the local rivers there in Maryland had a lot of catfish in them. Catfish. And I don't know, that do they bush bob down here where you hang short bushes, uh, limbs on bushes and bait? Of course, you can only do it at night because the turtles would eat the bait off. Right. But uh, my stepfather, uh, who with them was romancing my mother, <laughs> yeah. but I used to borrow his boat. And, of course, you could always get some kid to go with you. So when I, when I was uh, oh, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was, I'd already learned how to pole a boat. So I'd pull a boat at night, and we'd catch these catfish. And then I would skin them and sell them, and we sold them for $0.10 cents a pound clean. Mm-hmm. And $0.10 cents a pound don't sound like much now, but in those days, for $0.11, cents, you could go to movies and buy a bag of popcorn. Right. So I ended up having about as much money as anybody in high school. And, of course, I had a lot of unpaid help taking the catfish off because it was fun. You bet. And, you know, you were staying outdoors two or three nights a week. And, of course, those days... It seemed like children, young kids could go anywhere and not be in trouble, not like they are now. Right. It was, uh, so I just, and then I was in the Boy Scouts. I would have been an Eagle Scout, but uh, uh, while I, I got to life, and then uh, World War II came along, so right. I joined that and was in the Battle of the Bald and all God that stuff. God bless you, and yeah. thank you for your service. Well, it thank means you. a lot. What, uh, what I've been doing lately, which is uh, very rewarding to me, is the Healing Waters Program with Wounded Veterans. Right. And uh, I've done a number of those clinics, and uh, i got a couple more coming up this summer. But what's amazing about every one of those, men and women, I haven't seen anybody that's remorseful about what happened to them or wouldn't go back if they could. And, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they love their country. and they, uh, it, it seems like the bigger city you get to, the less appreciative people are of their country. And, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I do a lot of, a several number of times a year, I go to Maine and fish for smallmouth, and, which is my favorite freshwater fish. And uh, they, you go down the little tiny streets in Maine, there's American flags all over the place. Right. And, uh, there's only 1.3 million people in the whole state. And yet it's one of the largest states in the nation. Right. They only got one area code for the whole state. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, in places like that, they still are very proud of their country very and appreciate it. And uh, I wish all the kids, 18 or 19, would have to spend one year overseas somewhere. I think they'd have a total different appreciation for what we've got in this country. We're a spoiled nation, whether you're uh, eight years old. Or fifty, absolutely. We're a spoiled nation, absolutely. And uh, and that translates in, in, translates into a blessed nation with a lot of brave men and women that have gone before us and are still still going yep. before us for sure. Uh, when did the fly rod enter uh, your life? 1947. Uh, a fellow who later became the best known fishing writer in the country called Joe Brooks. Yeah. Uh, 
I had come back from World War II, and I was uh, I started working at the Biological Warfare Center. In fact, I was one of the three people that got anthrax, and uh, the other two got pulmonary anthrax and died. I got it on my arm. Anyway, uh, the reason I mention that is we were working shift work, so we'd work midnight to eight one week, eight to four the next, and four to twelve the next. And so two weeks out of four, I was able to hunt and fish a right. good bit of each day. Right. And I got a reputation of being sort of a hot dog bass fisherman. This was all smallmouths in the yeah. rivers there, Potomac and other rivers. And a fellow called, said his name was Joe Brooks, and was writing for a little tiny newspaper in Baltimore. And he came up, uh, he later became extremely famous, and my mentor, really. But um, we went down, I had never seen anybody fly fish, and we went just below Harper's Ferry on the Potomac, and... Um, I carried a canoe down, and he carried his equipment down, and I went and got the rest. When I got down there, he had a bamboo rod and a fly line, and I said, Mr. Brooks, I said, if you don't have any other equipment with you, I said, I, I, this was before spinning. Right. And I said, I'll lend you one of my plug rods. And uh, <laughs> he said, what's the problem? I said, well, it's kind of windy. It was only about 12 mile an hour, but I, bear in mind, I'd never seen a fly caster at that time. Nobody in central Maryland I knew even had a fly rod. Yeah. And... uh a really a good fisherman, a local fisherman, rarely gets outfished by anybody in his local area. Sure. And he almost outfished me on my water. But what got me at lunchtime, uh, we finished eating. He got up on a rock, and we could see these fish making little rings on the water. And he took this little white and black fly, and when uh, the fish would make a ring, he'd throw out there and catch a bass. Another ring, catch another bass. He did this about ten times, and I said, i got to have some of this, you know, so... Yeah. The next day, I got in my Model A Ford and drove 50 miles to Baltimore, and they gave me my first cast of the lesson. <laughs> and that's where I got started on the whole thing. What was your first equipment? Oh, it was a, a green fiberglass rod that I would not want to cast with today. <laughs> I think so. And what they called a GAF line, which would be like a nine-weight today. They did, it had letters on them. They didn't even have numbers. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure I could cast well with a rod like that today. I the think equipment's you, really changed. I, I, pardon me for saying so, but I believe you could cast well with a cedar post and a string. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just saw you on uh, television the other day fishing with uh, Tom Brokaw and uh, Michael Keaton. Yep. Some of those guys. You've had an opportunity to fish with uh, the most powerful people in the world, uh, uh, the most famous people in the world. Have you got a good story from from... Well, the embarrassing thing was, I'm 85 years old. I didn't know who Michael Keaton was. <laughs> and uh, uh, Yvonne Chouinard that owns Patagonia Fishing Tackle, I fished with him in New Zealand and Australia and Christmas on. I knew him real well. Yeah. And uh, uh, Tom McGuane is a very famous author. I knew his name, but I never met him. Mm-hmm. But, of course, I knew who Tom Brokaw was. Well, all of us had arrived one evening in the Bahamas to make these six television shows last spring, except for Keaton. And uh, they kept saying, well, Michael's going to get here tomorrow morning. He broke his foot, and he was in a cast. And he got off the plane, and he walked, I mean, off the bus, and he walked over and genuflected and said, I want your autograph. And I said to Tom, I said, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) Then I found out he was the Batman and all these things. And he's a little tiny guy. He's only about five foot four. Really? Not over five foot five. I don't think he weighs 165 pounds. I always thought Batman was like seven feet. Oh, tall. I did too. And and he he's moving all. He's like a bumblebee in a jar. He's never stops moving at all the time. But anyway, the the first night 
I mean, first day of the show when they were filming, I went out with Tom McGuane. I'm, I'm sorry, with Yvonne Chouinard, uh-huh. who I'd known real well. And Yvonne's one of them real quiet guys that hardly ever says anything. Well, you know, only one person bone fishes, and the other fellow that waits his turn. Right. Well, I was sitting there, and I've learned to take a fly swatter with me because you can't kill them flies that bite your legs with a hat, <laughs> but you can have fun killing them flies while the other guy's fishing. <laughs> so I had this fly swatter with me, and I came in, and McGain and Brokaw said, uh, well, what kind of guy is Lefty to fish with? And all Yvonne said is, he's got a pink fly swatter. <laughs> <laughs> More from Lefty Cray on the way a little later. Kinder Outdoors brought to you in part by... Forta Flora from the trusted name Purina, America's number one canine probiotic. Let's grab a cup of coffee. For years now, you've heard me talking about how I love buffalo wool products for keeping me warm in extreme cold and cool in extreme heat. Well, I'm not the only guy to catch on to buffalo wool. Craig Boddington hunts all over the world. He does it in Buffalo Wool. The Buffalo Wool Company didn't even know he was using the product until he sent them a note. That was just overwhelming and mind-blowing and and such a gracious thing. And Mr. Boddington is just the coolest guy ever. And it's really neat finding out that somebody is using your product, doing something amazing. Was it last year, the um, guy that won the the CV series alone, Clay Hayes, on TV, somebody sent us a picture of our socks hanging in his little shed there that... I had no idea that somebody would be doing that, but it's neat. And then the, the number of mushers that we get to see using it, and we've now become fans of the sport because because they're using it. Professional hunters, anglers, survivalists, and mushers depend on the Buffalo Wool Company to stay warm. You can, too. TheBuffaloWoolCo.com The Quail Coalition has drawn the line. Quail decline stops here. South and West Texas and Western Oklahoma are the last strong natural regions for wild bobwhite quail. We've all watched the drastic decline across the southern states of the iconic bobwhite. The Quail Coalition has vowed to do all within human power to not only stop quail decline, but build a future where the quail will flourish across all of its original habitat. If true quail conservation is important to you, please visit quailcoalition.org. Consider a membership, attend one of our fundraising banquets, and please consider starting a chapter in your home state. Together, let's sustain and restore huntable wild quail populations. Let's encourage and educate interested youth. Let's keep the most brilliant quail minds on earth working on a bright future for our quails. The first step, visit our website, quailcoalition.org. If you fry your turkeys during the holiday season and you're tired of the hassle of pots, open flames under hot oil, and sticky, oily messes, then it's time to take a good look at the Cajun Fryer by R&V Works. The original, the last fryer that you'll ever need to purchase. Cajun Fryer puts pro-level frying gear in your backyard or hunt and fish camp. These are high-performance, low-maintenance deep fryers that feature the heat source in the oil. Your oil heats from the inside out. If your family loves a fish fry, Cajun Fryer is a must. Because the heat source is suspended in the oil, small crumbs and pieces that burn fall to the bottom. So your oil stays much cleaner, many times lasting the entire year. Often imitated, never duplicated. Don't be fooled. Take a look at the original Cajun Fryer at CajunFryer.com. 
Fresh, crisp, delicious every time. CajunFryer.com It is the dream of the animal rights fanatics to suppress your most natural connection to the earth. To sell you a life filled with urban fascinations. To ignore that death is life's unwavering partner. Together, creating a relationship between predator and prey that makes it possible for us all to survive. To the hunter, this world's most honest steward, these fantasies are the poisonous, perverted manipulations of social misfits who would take this planet hostage. They should startle you and awaken you to trust the hunter in your blood. After spending a few days at Joshua Creek Ranch, I describe it as a sportsman's nirvana. We love creating a unique experience for each of our guests. You know, the interests can vary here from wing shooting to deer hunting to fly fishing to river kayaking. So we have a great variety of guests, and um, we like for them to enjoy everything we have to offer. As I enjoyed the birth of a new day over the rolling hill country ranch that is Joshua Creek, I was amazed at the wildlife, quail, pheasants, native white-tailed deer, trophy class axis deer. We've worked hard on the habitat, planted improved grasses, really with the help of some wildlife biologists studied what would make the best habitat to keep our game here. Mm -hmm. We can hunt easily six, seven, eight groups. And we don't try to do it on 40 acres. I mean, these people get to walk. They get to see some country. Joe and Ann Kirchival invite you to enjoy this free-range ranch just northwest of San Antonio. Visit joshuacreek.com. Did you ever notice that Jesus selected fishermen to follow him? Just saying. Welcome to our boat at Kinder Outdoors. I had an opportunity to work with Lefty Cray at a few different events before he passed away a few years ago. Uh, But the best day with Lefty was the one uh, that we're recalling on the show today. We were uh, on the shores of a beautiful private lake uh, on a late spring Day. The birds were singing, the flowers were in bloom. There's a little wind noise, please forgive that, but just an incredible setting. To talk about the life of a fellow that came from very humble beginnings and sat most of his life on the very top of the fly fishing world. This corner of the camp house brought to you by a pretty good place to take your fly rod, Joshua Creek Ranch in the Texas Hill Country. Yes, they are world-renowned for their upland bird hunting. But don't forget the fly rod. They're bordered by the beautiful Guadalupe River that has native Texas Guadalupe bass, a true trophy, swimming around in there. Take the fly rod on your bird hunt to Joshua Creek Ranch. Learn more about them at kinderoutdoors.com. Let's get back to our conversation with the great, late Lefty Craig. How many uh, presidents, United States presidents? Have well, you? I fished a number of times with Carter, and I was supposed to fish three different times with, with the older Bush. Uh-huh. And uh, twice he had to cancel, and once I had to cancel. But we yeah. did 
talk and meet and everything. In fact, I have a picture in my. He sent me in my uh, front room of him casting, and he's left-handed too. Huh. And it, uh, underneath, he wrote a nice thing about it, and then he wrote underneath there, "Please don't cast or criticize my casting style." <laughs> I thought he was a wonderful guy. I really did. Yeah. And Carter was, and and him and uh, actually he and uh, his wife Rosalind both very very nice people. Could they fish? Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, your wife is not impressed with you. <laughs> right. You know, she, she's just sitting on the toilet and everything else. Oh, she yeah. ain't impressed with you at all. <laughs> right. And three different times, Carter's group, when he was president, I only live an hour from Washington and an hour from Camp David, where's a trout stream. Uh-huh. Three different times they called and said, President Carter would like to fish with you. Well, I had talks to give her clinics, and I wasn't just going to say, well, the president called me, so I ain't going to do this because sure. they'd already advertised so three sure. times I couldn't go when I got off the third time my wife who I've been married uh, married to for almost 64 years and she's my best friend most of the time most and, of the time uh, <laughs> I told her once love was blind and marriage is an eye opener but anyway <laughs> <laughs> she told me love was marriage of grand divorce is 500 grand so I, <laughs> I've stayed for the 64 years but after I got off the phone the third time, she says, who was that? And I said, it was President Carter's people. So what did they want? I said, they wanted, they wanted me to fish with him. And she looked me up and down like I had worms and said, why would the president want to fish with you? you know? <laughs> Wives ain't too impressed with us. I don't know why they marry us and think we're the dumbest man on earth. I ain't never figured that out yet. Now, we're in the same boat. I'm in the same boat right now with uh, with Lefty. I never thought I'd be in the same boat with you, but there we are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Lefty, do you think that uh, your deceiver pattern will ever take off? You think people? <laughs> I think it will. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that has been quite a streamer, hasn't it? Yeah. Boy, yeah. It's uh, been yeah. fished all over the world. And... Yeah. People say, "Well, when did you invent it?" Well, you know, if you're a fly fisherman, you're constantly coming up with new flies. So, I don't know when I invented it, but I do know it was in the late 1950s. But it's been fished. It was on a postage stamp. 1991, the United States government yeah. uh, post office. Thought enough of your fly to give it its own postage. Yeah, and made me pay the same price for the stamps as everybody they else. <laughs> they they got no get... discount. <laughs> us does not mean U.S. I mean, U.S. don't mean us. <laughs> they didn't give you a free book of stamps. <laughs> they didn't give you anything. <laughs> didn't even give them a fly back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, now, you said earlier that your favorite uh, freshwater fish is the smallie. Right. And I, I think I know the obvious reasons, the fight. And What what are your reasons for loving the smallie? I think it's maybe because that's when I got started fly fishing. I started on smallmouth. My second favorite is uh, peacock bass, which you find mostly in the Amazon places. But I, also the largemouth has a big place in my heart. And uh, Bill, Bill invited me down here the first time. And... Uh, we caught so many bass, I just fell in love with the place. So oh, yeah. I love this part of Texas. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, the bonefish? That's my favorite fish, yeah. Favorite overall? Yeah, I think it's it offers a lot kind of things. You can do a whole lot right and one thing wrong. You know, the game's over, you got to go again. You don't have to fight them for 20 minutes. And a lot of, some, a few... Very experienced saltwater fly fishermen like tarpon pest, and they'll never get over that. But right. most experienced fly fishermen I know who fish in saltwater and have caught most everything will, in the end, say the bonefish they'd rather fish for than anything. Yeah. 
What uh, what do you see? I'm I'm a big quail hunter, raising trained bird dogs, and so I have my thoughts about what we need to do for the future of quail. What conservation efforts are are you behind, and what do you see that we need to do for our fisheries? Uh, I think there's a number of things wrong. First of all, I used to be an exhibition shooter for Remington Arms, and I, I've done a lot of hunting, not just in this country but other places. Sure. I think the biggest thing problem with the future of hunting today is that when I was growing up, a guy who could get a triple on quail or a double on grouse or something like that was a hero. And to most children today who live in either cities or or near cities, they don't hunt or fish. And they think a guy who kills birds is a killer. Yeah. And so the biggest handicap I see to hunting today is that the future people, the young people, most of them do not regard hunting in a good light. They actually think we're weird people or there's something wrong with us or yeah. we're killers. And uh, I mean, they'll eat hamburger from somebody killed a steer or a cow, but they they think somebody that kills a deer and eats it, something wrong with them. I really think that's the biggest problem of all. The other problem is that uh, hunting license and fishing license are what, we're the people who really take care of the environment, mm-hmm. the people who bought these hunting and fishing licenses, and the people who didn't put very little into taking care of it. In fact, we're the ones that force the legislature to keep our rivers clear and our lakes clean, where the people get their drinking water and this right. sort of thing. And uh, if you don't, if you lose your hunters and fishers, you lose a part of the populace that really has been responsible for taking care of our resources. The other thing that really concerns me is that uh, in the Potomac, the Susquehanna, the Mid-Atlantic area where we have smallmouth rivers, 20% of our smallmouth male bass now have female eggs in them. Hmm. And uh, something that I think is the candle or the canary in the mine type of thing is that they've found out that uh, when we take all these drugs, what we don't assimilate in our body goes through our sewage treatment plants. Hmm. And none of our plants are designed to cope for medicines. Right. And so all the estrogen that women transfer, all the all the type of medication we go, are all going into the drinking systems. And most of our big rivers now are responsible for, as the water systems for our larger cities. And it's not just in the east, it's all over the country. So what I'm wondering is, uh, I know I'm not going to get pregnant from drinking this water, but <laughs> but but I am I am concerned. What is the long-term effect? And and the EPA has just in the last year started to investigate this thing, and uh, we need to quickly understand what are all these medical problems that may occur because of it. I think that's another real problem that we have. Absolutely, Bernard Victor Cray. Lefty. He passed away in March of 2018. He was 93 years old at that time. We sat down for this visit a few years before he passed away. Had a lifetime of memories, life, and wisdom to share. And I hope you're enjoying it today on Kinder Outdoors. Brought to you by my friends at Joshua Creek Ranch. The best bird hunting in Texas. Free range, hill country, naturally occurring axis deer. Five-star lodging, dining, and hosting. Learn more about Joshua Creek Ranch when you come see me at kinderoutdoors.com.
Hi, I'm Jim Shockey, and it's time once again to invite you to our annual Jim Shockey Classic two-day charity event where we all get together to celebrate and honor those who have served and sacrificed. All of us deeply admire the invaluable sacrifices made by our military personnel. 100% of the proceeds fund all expense-paid Shockey tribute hunts through the Freedom Hunters Military Outreach Program. In addition to the golf tournament, there will be a sporting clay tournament on Sunday morning before the banquet. So join me April 14th and 15th, 2024 at the award-winning Barnsley Resort in Adersville, Georgia, nestled in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. Visit JimShockeyClassic.com to sponsor, to register, or to donate, and also to learn more about our great event. I really hope to see you there. If you love to hit the woods with a bow in your hand, now is the time to visit Cinnamon Creek Ranch Archery. You know, it is a buyer's year. And what I mean by that, no matter which brand you choose, whether it's a Hoyt, Matthews, PSC, Bowtech, it's going to be a good year to purchase a bow because everybody has something really good to offer. When you visit with the pros at Cinnamon Creek Archery, you're talking to guys that live this stuff day in and day out. We are a try-before-you-buy shop. Not to mention, altogether, we've got a well over 100 years of experience. So it's something that we do on a daily. I know I hunt two or three times a, a, a week, whether you know it's season or not. So we can definitely help you with that stuff. Cinnamon Creek Archery has practice ranges indoors and out. The static bags is just a range that has distances out to 100 yards. Uh, we also have four 3D courses. Each one of those has approximately 20 targets on it. We have a 30-yard upstairs range, and we have a 20-yard downstairs range. Come see us right now at CinnamonCreekRanch.com. The Wild Sheep Foundation. Our purpose sounds simple, to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain. But from where we stand to the top of the mountain is a challenging and exciting journey. To be successful, we support the top scientific minds in wildlife research. We tell the story and history of the wild sheep in North America to those around us, like you. And step by step, we protect and grow wild sheep populations. If not for the Wild Sheep Foundation, more than $115 million in care, concern, and conservation work would not have happened over the past 40 years. Important work that has seen our wild sheep populations grow from 25,000 or so in the 1950s to more than 85,000 today. Learn more about the worldwide leader in wild sheep conservation. Secure a membership. Attend a banquet. Bid on an auction item. Make an impact on top of the mountain. WildSheepFoundation.org at the Outdoors Tomorrow Foundation, we're really happy to have more than 50,000 kids in school classrooms learning about archery, fishing, boating, and other outdoor skills each year. We're thrilled that we have grown to schools across the United States and continue to grow. We're humbled that teaching wildlife conservation to our future generations have been so eagerly accepted by more than a quarter million kids so far. We're happy, thrilled, and humbled. But we're not stopping. The Outdoor Adventures program in junior highs and high schools across America has proven to be a hit with kids. And in case after case, we've seen Outdoor Adventures' young lives changed. Kids that just were not into school and not involved are now excited to get into the classroom each day because of Outdoor Adventures. The kids earn classroom credit by learning the outdoor basics, and they smile while learning. If you want Outdoor Adventures in your local school, Contact me, Scott McClure. I'm at GoOTF.com. That's Scott, 
at GoOTF.com. Procrasta Fishing, the art of going fishing when you should be painting the house. Hey, wait for us. Welcome to the Kinder Outdoors Camp House. <laughs> and we're Procrasta Fishing with one of the very best ever, ever on the show today, recalling a conversation with the great Lefty Cray from about 10 years back. This corner of the Camp House brought to you by my friends Joe and Ann Kirchival at Joshua Creek Ranch in the Texas Hill Country, endorsed by Beretta and Orvis. In fact, this coming summer at Joshua Creek Ranch, they'll feature the only Orvis-endorsed fly fishing clinic in Texas, right there on that crystal clear, cypress tree-lined, beautiful Joshua Creek that runs right through the middle of the ranch. If you'd like to be a part of that, now is the time to let them know. You can find all of the contact info, and details about Joshua Creek Ranch when you visit me at kinderoutdoors.com. You joined forces with uh, Temple Fork Outfitters a few years ago, yep. and uh, Temple Fork carries the uh, Lefty Cray line of rods. Mm-hmm. Good people to work with, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Yes. But the, one of the big problems has been why we have not got more people, both women and children, into fly fishing. It's been too expensive uh, it used to be ten years ago there were almost no rods that cost less than four or five hundred dollars. So if you had two kids and you wanted to get them into fishing, between the reels and rods you had way over a thousand dollars invested, and you didn't know whether they were going to like it or not. Yeah. The other thing is that, um, uh, that we really tended to make it a man's sport, and it's just I do private lessons uh, at home on fly casting. It used to be that if a woman would come for a fly casting lesson, usually her boyfriend or her husband brought her and brought her, and they she went along because he wanted her to. Yeah. What's happened the last few years is I've had lots of women who bring their boyfriends or their husband. In fact, uh, do you know who Wayne Lapierre is? Oh yeah. Well. I uh, met a lady who was a very beautiful lady uh, in her 30s on a business deal, and we bonded, and my wife and I, in fact, well, I'm hit him with a story. We really liked her, and mm-hmm. I went, and she loved fly fishing, and we fished together a number of times, and one day she called up, and she said, uh, I think I might marry this guy. Would you give him a fly cast last? I said, oh, sure, Susie. So she brings him up. This little short fellow named Wayne LaPierre standing there. I didn't know who the hell he was. And, and, uh, <laughs> you didn't know? Not then. And uh, she hooked the thumb over toward Wayne and said, if he don't learn to learn to fly cast, he's out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne learned to fly cast, and they've, of course, I've been everywhere on the planet. And they said, where should we go? And they've been fishing in Africa and New Zealand oh, yeah. and South America, and they're having a wonderful time. When you're the head of the NRA, you have opportunities. That's right. But the point is that uh, the area that's grown the, the most in fly fishing the last few years has been the introduction of women and Temple Fork uh, has been making rods that are affordable for almost anybody. They, they've got rod, some of their finest rods. In fact, we did a um, 
we did a test by taking some of the most expensive rod blanks, uh-huh. fly fishing blanks, and we took six of those and two temple forks, all blanks, sent them to Korea, had all the rods made exactly the same way, same handles, same fittings. The only difference was they had a code number. What we really wanted to find out was uh, what kind of action the customer wanted. We found out that people who are real good casters like fast rods, pretty good casters like slower rods, and people who don't fish a lot like an even slower rod. It turned out that uh, our cheapest rod was one of the most successful in, no in the test, and we tested it all over. It also turned out the most expensive rod got the worst rating from everybody. Isn't that something? So money, the most expensive thing is not always the best thing. Right. So I think that the Temple Fork is in a is matched the market for where we're at. The kids can now get a great outfit for seventy five, eighty dollars. Oh, that's great! What would you suggest to a, to a single mom or maybe a dad who hasn't fished since his dad took him when he was a kid, and they want to get their kids involved? What would you do with your kids? Take them to the Dallas Fly Fishers Club. They got one of the nicest clubs, and I've been in, given talks there a couple times, and they. They they will teach you fly casting. They teach you fly tying. They have uh, trips that they they create and sort of mentor the people going on the trips. Uh, it's and they and one of the the difference. I don't get me wrong. I'm not just a fly fisherman. If they won't take flies, I'm going to a Gitsit or a Cinco or something else. If they won't take that, I'm going to go to worms. I'm going to catch that fish one way or the other. So <laughs> I ain't one of them. Guys, you know it says that you got to use the underarm fur from orangutan from South Africa with <laughs> Australian possum and all that. I'm a, I want to catch fish. You're a fisherman, absolutely, and I want to catch fish. But um, the there is a difference between people who fly fish and other fishermen. If I'm fishing with a guy and we're catching a lot of, let's say we're catching a lot of them on Cinco's and some boat goes by. My buddy will stick his rod underwater when he's got a bass on there because he don't want nobody to know what he's catching them on. <laughs> but if you're on a, on a flash fly fishing and you're catching a lot of fish, or you're on, you're not catching any. The fellow down from you is catching stuff. He'll come over and give you flies. There's a camaraderie there that doesn't exist with, uh, and it's not an elitist thing at all because. No. Most fly fishermen they ain't got enough money to be elitist. You know? right, right. <laughs> They're like you and me who are working for a living. Right. But there is a camaraderie. So when you join those clubs, uh, people are tickled to have you, and they share it, and they love uh, love helping kids to do these things, and they got programs for kids. So some single mother, and also uh, there's a lot of nice guys in there that got money, so the wife, if, it's a, if she's single... <laughs> she might find a husband there too. You are a piece of work, sir. Oh, I thought Bill was a guy's name. I got married. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, oh, Lefty, thank you so much. Oh. I, I really appreciate the time and uh, good fishing to you this afternoon. Well, thank I, I, you. I know you're looking forward to your day. That's right. What a great memory I have, and I love sharing it with you. The day I sat down with Lefty Cray uh, out on a beautiful East Texas lake. It was a a privately managed piece of water that held giant bass. And Lefty was there to fish with the host, the ranch owner, for a few days. And I was invited out to visit with Lefty. I was not invited to fish with Lefty. (laughs) I wish I had been. They were catching giants. That would have been 
that would have just been too much for me to absorb. Uh, fishing, catching giant bass with the legendary Lefty Cray. That, that would have been too much good. <laughs> My wife, Robin, has claimed the top spot uh, when it comes to fly fishing in our home. Her love for the fly rod began many years ago when she meticulously figured it out, loves to fish to a fish, and stand in a fly stream. She could, I'm convinced she could stand there three days without moving. It's fun. We love it. There's something magical about a fly rod, simplistic about a fly on the end of a string, fishing to a fish. We love to go when we have the opportunity. John Bonnell, Master Chef and Camp House Cook here at Kinder Outdoors. I know you share our love for the fly rod because many times that means you're fishing a trout stream somewhere. And trout don't live in ugly places, John. <laughs> I never met a trout stream that wasn't just absolutely gorgeous. That's exactly right. So once I pull those trout out, I've got a problem. I don't know how to prepare them. I either overcook them or they don't taste right. Help me out. One of the gentlest and easiest ways to cook a trout, because it is a, is a light, you know, flaky, delicate meat, is to poach them. Now, get some water going. That's about one-third white wine, two-thirds water. Season it well with salt. Get a little bit of lemon in there as well. Lower the trout in just as it starts to simmer. Not a full rolling boil, but just when the bubbles are starting, let them poach for about four to five minutes. Delicate, clean, beautiful stuff right there. And if you want to come visit John, uh, remember two things. Poach your trout, not your deer. And come see him. Tell, tell us where uh, Bonnie Ellis is located. And we're on Brian Irvin Road in the southwest side of Fort Worth, or you can check us out on the web at bonnellstexas.com. Hey, everybody, it's Sean Mann. And when I'm not in the great outdoors, I'm thinking about it with Kinder Outdoors. Teach a man to hunt and fish, and you'll never see him again. Sit down and prop up your boots with us here at Kinder Outdoors. Brought to you in part by my friends at Purina Pro Plan, the world's greatest dog fuel. Stop by a field trial. Check with the champion. See what they feed their dogs. Betcha, it's Pro Plan. Pick up a bag for your champ at Atwood's Ranch and Home Stores in Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Kansas, and Missouri. Ray Sasser was our camp house storyteller for a long, long time. We were fortunate to gather a lot of his wisdom on tape, like how to properly go about aging a white-tailed deer. Afternoon shadows were long when the nine-point buck stepped out of the brush within shooting range of the Central Texas Tower Blind. My wife, Emily, was the designated hitter, but it was my job to evaluate the deer and give her the green light. We were looking for management bucks. On the ranch we were hunting, a management buck is at least three years old with subpar antlers. The nine-pointer fit the bill, but I was really hoping for an older buck. As daylight faded, the deer started walking down a faint ranch road. I gave Emily the go-ahead, and she used her rifle into position and began tracking the buck through her scope, just waiting for him to stop and present a stationary target. That's when I noticed a second buck that had just stepped out into the road from behind a bush. I glanced at the second deer and noted his spindly eight-point rack and just assumed, without a critical look, that he was very young. The two bucks were walking toward one another on a collision course when the nine-pointer left the road and cautiously circled around the other buck. Shoot the eight-pointer, I whispered, and my wife shifted her attention 
performed her duties admirably, and dropped the buck where he stood. An examination of his teeth revealed the deer was five years old and about as sorry a specimen as an adult whitetail gets on this particular ranch. He was an ideal buck to remove for management purposes, but I might not have determined his age had I not spent hundreds of hours hunting, photographing, and watching how whitetails interact with one another. The nine-pointer gave ground to the eight-pointer because the eight-pointer was older and had established dominance in the whitetail pecking order. Why is it important that a hunter be able to age live deer at maximum rifle range? Because most bucks don't reach their full antler growth potential until they're at least five years old. Depending on range condition or whether the deer receives supplemental feed, their antlers may peak at age six, seven, or even older. It seems a shame to shoot an outstanding young buck before he has a chance to reach his full potential, and likewise before he has a chance to spread his superior genes through the deer herd. It seems equally shameful to take a young, outstanding buck and leave an older, unimpressive buck to do the breeding. That's why so much emphasis is placed on being able to determine a live buck's age, and you can't ask them to see their driver's license. Having hunted white-tailed deer from the Canadian River to the Rio Grande, I can say without reservation that deer look different in different regions, and their appearances may even differ from one ranch to the next. The same buck even looks different at different times of the year. When range conditions are good, the deer are in excellent shape, and they look older. They look younger after the breeding season when they're run down from chasing does. The best educational tool for judging deer antlers or aging bucks is a video camera. It functions quietly and you can replay the video for knowledgeable hunting partners and debate each buck. Here are four clues to use in field judging the age of a whitetail buck. The first is body shape. Young bucks have immature bodies that are shaped like does. They have delicate facial features, slender torsos, and legs that appear long and slender. This is true of yearling bucks and two-year-old deer. They start filling out by age three. Even at four, their backs remain a straight line. At age five, bucks are fully mature, and both their stomachs and their backs will sag slightly. From now on, the deer's legs appear too short for its body. Another clue is head and neck. Young bucks have tight skins on their faces only in full maturity, which is age six and older, will the deer's skin sag under its chin, like the skin of a mature person. Bucks begin exhibiting the swollen bodybuilder-looking neck at about age four, and a muscular neck should be very apparent in a five-year-old deer. The swollen neck results from rubbing antlers against trees and brush. Elevated testosterone levels contributed to the swollen neck. Fully mature buck often develops a distinctly Roman nose. The patchy forehead gland on a mature buck appears thicker and darker than on a young buck. Now you look at the tarsal glands. These are the glands inside each hind leg at the knee. They're barely noticeable in bucks younger than three, but become bigger and darker as the deer matures. Darkly stained tarsal glands are a particularly good indicator of age during the breeding season, which begins in October in Central and East Texas. In West Texas, the breeding season occurs in November with a Thanksgiving peak. South Texas has the state's latest breeding season, late November through December. Finally, you look at social interactions. Young deer will usually give way to an older deer. Fight may break out if a buck relocates to a new area, which frequently occurs during the breeding season. But dominance is generally well established among bucks that know one another. 
Dominant bucks will go out of their way to make subordinate bucks give ground to them. They may walk a hundred yards out of their way just to make another buck back down. The dominant buck often does not have the biggest antlers, but he's usually the eldest and often outweighs a younger rival. You'll notice that I never mentioned antler size in my aging clues, yet antler size is the only assessment most hunters ever consider. Even if your dog has an itchy coat or a special condition like an intolerance to grain, there's a pro plan formula for your dog. Pick up the bag that suits your dog best at Atwood's Ranch and Home Stores. Hi, everybody. It's World Championship caller Al Morris. When I'm not in the great outdoors, I'm sure thinking about it with Big Billy Kinder Outdoors. Truck Equipment has been supplying premium truck accessories and equipment since 1997. Chip Knees and the crew at Weatherford Truck Equipment are pros that can totally equip your farm, work, or town truck to totally suit your needs. Flatbeds, grill guards, bumpers, bed covers, toolboxes, hitches, running boards, or any custom fabrication that you can scheme up for your truck. Weatherford Truck Equipment is located at 2620 Ranger Highway in Weatherford, Texas. Just 20 minutes west of Fort Worth. Visit online at weatherfordtruck.com and take a look at the exceptional quality in our truck accessories and customized metal fabrication. Ranch truck, service truck, special purpose truck, it's all at Weatherford Truck Equipment. Contact Chip and set up an appointment to talk over your truck accessory or custom fabrication needs. Weatherford Truck Equipment, 2620 Ranger Highway in Weatherford. Winter at the lake is a wonderful thing. The still, quiet solace of the woods and water at Grapevine Lake offer the perfect opportunity to slow the season down a bit. Tucked away behind a secure gated entry and snuggled on the still shore of Grapevine Lake is the national award-winning Vineyards Campground and Cabins. Full hookups, lightning-fast Wi-Fi, and cable TV at every campsite and cabin keep you connected, even when you're getting away. The vineyard sites and fully furnished cabins are the perfect place to kick off the new year and enjoy the great outdoors. Our unique location makes you feel far away from the hustle and bustle when you're just a few blocks from historic downtown Grapevine, the Christmas capital of Texas, offering shops, restaurants, and all the sights and sounds of the season. Cozy cabins, spacious pull-through sites, and a camp store on site to provide whatever you need. Always keeping your health and safety a priority, come enjoy nature's original way to social distance. Come see us this winter. The Vineyards Campground and Cabins. VineyardsCampground.com Introducing Canyon Valley Provisions. Grass-fed beef is high in omega-3s and conjugated linoleic acid, which is known as CLAs. In layman terms, it's a type of fat that your body can use, and it doesn't damage your heart or any part of your vascular system. Buy better beef for your family. We manage holistically, or some people call it regeneratively. We want everything that we do to be a part of our good stewardship of the land. We think that's what God's put us here to do, so... The cattle are healthy and the land's healthy. We want both. We don't want one or the other. If you were to buy a grass-fed, grass-finished steak by the pound, you'd pay anywhere from 18 to $30 a pound. But if you buy a quarter, half, or whole, you're ranging from anywhere $7.80 and below. So you're paying a third of the price for that steak and, you know, those good cuts. And you get a whole lot more bang for your buck when you buy in bulk. Don't let 2020 happen in your home again. CanyonValleyProvisions.com 
raising cattle in West Texas for five generations. The Quail Coalition has drawn the line. Quail decline stops here. South and West Texas and Western Oklahoma are the last strong natural regions for wild bobwhite quail. We've all watched the drastic decline across the southern states of the iconic bobwhite. The Quail Coalition has vowed to do all within human power to not only stop quail decline, but build a future where the quail will flourish across all of its original habitat. If true quail conservation is important to you, please visit quailcoalition.org. Consider a membership, attend one of our fundraising banquets, and please consider starting a chapter in your home state. Together, let's sustain and restore huntable wild quail populations. Let's encourage and educate interested youth. Let's keep the most brilliant quail minds on earth working on a bright future for our quails. The first step, visit our website, quailcoalition.org. There's only one thing that can keep us out of the deer woods. Just kidding. Welcome back to Kinder Outdoors. 89% of the field trial champions across North America are fed Purina Pro Plan Performance in the Purple Sport Bag. 30% protein and 20% fat. You'll find it at Atwood's Ranch and Home Stores and everywhere that fine dog food is sold. Lefty Cray, we're looking back on a conversation we had lakeside with Lefty about a decade ago. Well, Mr. Cray, Lefty, that'd be better. <laughs> Thank you so much for the time today. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, what a beautiful setting out here in East Texas. And uh, you could fish anywhere you want to in the world. I can't imagine being want, want, wanting to be anywhere else than you are today. No either. That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous. How, where did the love of uh, fishing just fishing begin for you. What well, age? I'm 84, 85 actually. I'm so old. I remember when men wore tattoos and women wore earrings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started. My father died when I was six. I was born and raised in Maryland, and we lived in an urban area. And you didn't have any. Most of anyone didn't have any money in those days. But you could hunt and fish, right. particularly fishing. And so I really started fishing at a very early age. And then when I went to high school we didn't have much money we were on welfare but i had uh, two brothers and a sister and uh what my wife my mother said you know if you can find enough money to get your clothes and food you can go to high school in those days when you were a young kid you could get away with work and you didn't have the law of laws they have now anyway uh, the local rivers there in maryland had a lot of catfish in them Catfish. And I don't know, that do they bush bob down here where you hang short bushes, uh, limbs on bushes and bait? Of course, you can only do it at night because the turtles would eat the bait off. Right. But uh, my stepfather, uh, who with them was romancing my mother, <laughs> yeah. but I used to borrow his boat. And, of course, you could always get some kid to go with you. So when I, when I was uh, oh, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was, I'd already learned how to pole the boat. So I'd pull a boat at night, and we'd catch these catfish. And then I would skin them and sell them, and we sold them for $0.10 cents a pound clean. Mm -hmm. And $0.10 a pound don't sound like much now, but in those days, for $0.11, cents, you could go to movies and buy a bag of popcorn. Right. So I ended up having about as much money as anybody in high school. And, of course, I had a lot of unpaid help 
taking the catfish off because it was fun. You bet. And, you know, you were staying outdoors two or three nights a week. And, of course, those days it seemed like children, young kids could go anywhere and not be in trouble, not like they are now. Right. It was uh, so I just, and then I was in the Boy Scouts. I would have been an Eagle Scout, but uh, uh, while I, I got to life and then uh, World War II came along, so. Right. I joined that and was in the Battle of the Bald and all God that stuff. God bless you. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Well, it means a lot. What, uh, what I've been doing lately, which is uh, very rewarding to me, is the Healing Waters Program with Wounded Veterans. Right. And uh, I've done a number of those clinics, and uh, i got a couple more coming up this summer. But what's amazing about every one of those, men and women, I haven't seen anybody that's remorseful about what happened to them or wouldn't go back if they could. And, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they love their country and they support. Uh, it, it seems like the bigger city you get to, the less appreciative people are of their country. And Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, I do a lot of, a several number of times a year, I go to Maine and fish for smallmouth, and, which is my favorite freshwater fish. And uh, they, you go down the little tiny streets in Maine, there's American flags all over the place. Right. And, uh, there's only 1.3 million people in the whole state. And yet it's one of the largest states in the nation. Right. They only got one area code for the whole state. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, in places like that, they still are very proud of their country very and appreciate it. And uh, I wish all the kids 18 or 19 would have to spend one year overseas somewhere. I think they'd have a total different appreciation for what we've got in this country. We're a spoiled nation, whether you're uh, eight years old. Or fifty, absolutely. We're a spoiled nation, absolutely. And uh, and that translates in, in, translates into a blessed nation with a lot of brave men and women that have gone before us and are still still going yep. before us for sure. Uh, when did the fly rod enter uh, your life? 1947. Uh, a fellow who later became the best known fishing writer in the country called Joe Brooks. Yeah. Um, I had come back from World War II, and I was uh, I started working at the Biological Warfare Center. In fact, I was one of the three people that got anthrax, and uh, the other two got pulmonary anthrax and died. I got it on my arm. Anyway, uh, the reason I mention that is we were working shift work, so we'd work midnight to eight one week, eight to four the next, and four to twelve the next. And so two weeks out of four, I was able to hunt and fish a right. good bit of each day. Right, and I got a reputation of being sort of a hot dog bass fisherman. This was all smallmouth in the rivers there, Potomac and other rivers. And a fellow called, said his name was Joe Brooks, and was writing for a little tiny newspaper in Baltimore. And he came up, uh, he later became extremely famous, and my mentor, really. But um, we went down, I had never seen anybody fly fish, and we went just below Harper's Ferry on the Potomac, and... Um, I carried a canoe down, and he carried his equipment down, and I went and got the rest. When I got down there, he had a bamboo rod and a fly line, and I said, Mr. Brooks, I said, if you don't have any other equipment with you, I said, I, I, this was before spinning. Right. And I said, I'll lend you one of my plug rods. And uh, <laughs> he said, what's the problem? I said, well, it's kind of windy. It was only about 12 mile an hour, but I, bear in mind, I'd never seen a fly caster at that time. Nobody in central Maryland I knew even had a fly rod. Yeah. And... uh a really a good fisherman, a local fisherman, rarely gets outfished by anybody in his local area. Sure. And he almost outfished me on my water. But what got me at lunchtime, uh, we finished eating. He got up on a rock, and we could see these fish making little rings on the water. And he took this little white and black fly, and when the 
the fish would make a ring he'd throw out there and catch a bass. Another ring, catch another bass. He did this about ten times, and I said, i got to have some of this, you know. So yeah. the next day I got in my Model A Ford and drove 50 miles to Baltimore, and they gave me my first cast of the lesson. <laughs> and that's where I got started on the whole thing. What was your first equipment? Oh, it was a a green fiberglass rod that I would not want to cast with today. <laughs> I think so. And what they called a GAF line, which would be like a nine weight today. They did, it had letters on them. They didn't even have numbers. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could cast well with a rod like that today. I the think equipment's you, really changed. Uh, I, uh, pardon me for saying so, but I believe you could cast well with a cedar post and a string. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just saw you on uh, television the other day fishing with uh, Tom Brokaw and uh, Michael Keaton. Yep. Some of those guys. You've had an opportunity to fish with uh, the most powerful people in the world, uh, uh, the most famous people in the world. Have you got a good story from... from well, the embarrassing thing was I'm 85 years old. I didn't know who Michael Keaton was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Yvonne Chouinard that owns Patagonia Fishing Tackle, I fished with him in New Zealand and Australia and Christmas on. I knew him real well. Yeah. And uh, uh, Tom McGuane is a very famous author. I knew his name, but I never met him. Mm-hmm. But, I knew, of course, I knew who Tom Brokaw was. Well, all of us had arrived one evening in the Bahamas to make these six television shows last spring, except for Keaton. And uh, they kept saying, well, Michael's going to get here tomorrow morning. He broke his foot, and he was in a cast. And he got off the plane, and he walked, I mean, off the bus, and he walked over and genuflected and said, I want your autograph. And I said to Tom, I said, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) Then I found out he was the Batman and all these things. And he's a little tiny guy. He's only about five foot four. Really? Not over five foot five. I don't think he weighs 165 pounds. I always thought Batman was like seven feet. Oh, I did too. And and he he's moving all. He's like a bumblebee in a jar. He's never stops moving at all the time. But anyway, the the first night, I mean first day of the show, when they were filming, I went out with Tom McGuane. I'm I'm sorry, with Yvonne Chouinard, who I'd known real well. And Yvonne's one of them real quiet guys that hardly ever says anything. Well, you know, only one person bone fishes, and the other fellow t- waits his turn. Right. Well, I was sitting there, and I've learned to take a fly swatter with me because you can't kill them flies that bite your legs with a hat, <laughs> but you can have fun killing them flies while the other guy's fishing. <laughs> so I had this fly swatter with me, and I came in, and McGain and Brokaw said, uh, well, what kind of guy is Lefty to fish with? And all Yvonne said is, He's got a pink flush water. <laughs> hey, good morning, everybody. This is Babe Winkleman. And when I'm not in the great outdoors, I'm thinking about it with Kinder Outdoors. I wish you could see the incredible pheasant mount that I got back from my buddy Roy Holdridge at True Life Taxidermy in Granbury, Texas. The mount of these pheasants in their native habitat is just phenomenal. I really try to preserve my memories from the field in a way that's worthy of spending the time and money on taxidermy. So when my son and I shot these two pheasants on the rise up in South Dakota, I tucked them away from the meat birds because I knew I wanted to send them to Roy. I also gathered up some of the corn stalks and dirt and stubble that we were hunting in. Roy took those raw products and recreated an unbelievable replica of our memory. In fact, 
you can see it at kinderoutdoors.com. Roy can do this for you, too. TrueLifeTaxidermy.org. True Life Taxidermy, Granbury, Texas. Hi, I'm Jim Shockey, and it's time once again to invite you to our annual Jim Shockey Classic two-day charity event where we all get together to celebrate and honor those who have served and sacrificed. All of us deeply admire the invaluable sacrifices made by our military personnel. 100% of the proceeds fund all expense-paid Shockey tribute hunts through the Freedom Hunters Military Outreach Program. In addition to the golf tournament, there will be a sporting clay tournament on Sunday morning before the banquet. So join me April 14th and 15th 2024 at the award-winning Barnsley Resort in Adersville, Georgia, nestled in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. Visit JimShockeyClassic.com to sponsor, to register, or to donate, and also to learn more about our great event. I really hope to see you there. Once upon a time, long, long ago, elk roamed bountifully across most of North America. Their bugle cut the early morning fog in the hills of Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, coast to coast. And then they were gone. But in 1984, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was born. And since then, a quarter of a million people have joined the elk effort. Nearly nine and a half million acres have been preserved or access opened up to the public. There are more than 500 RMEF chapters, and the way we go about our business makes us one of the most efficient and effective conservation organizations in the U.S. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation plays a leading role in restoring elk to their historic habitat. Today, make a difference in the world. Make an impact. Learn how at rmef.org. Freedom Hunters. They say thank you to our very bravest and finest in a very special way. Uh, we're a 501c3 military outreach program. We take servicemen and their families out on outdoor ventures, mainly hunting, fishing, shooting trips all around the country and internationally, too. These trips are more than a thank you and a good time, far more. It invigorates them. The healing comes out of it. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I started it just as a thank you, as a give back. I had no idea the therapeutic value of these hunts. I mean, it, it just it changes them. You can see it in their eyes. When they show up at camp, they're quiet and, and reserved. By the end of, end of camp, they're opened up and, uh, you know, chatting with other veterans. It's amazing. You can go on our website. We've got a donation button. Or just email us and say, hey, here's the opportunity. We'll fit a vet into that opportunity, whatever it is. Freedomhunters.org. Every animal that has ever roamed this planet was designed as hunted or hunter, predator or prey. We are hunters. If it were ever necessary, even the strictest vegan would return to the wild, driven to survive by the instincts of his ancestors. Those who hide behind the soft delusion of their own ignorance do so from within a civilization whose very being costs the lives of countless creatures every single day. Death is an undeniable fuel of life. 
This is the undeniable truth of existence. To live in balance with the planet that sustains us, we must admit and embrace the nature within us. Trust the hunter in your blood. Money can't buy happiness, but it can put your brand new bass boat within casting distance of it. Glad you're in the camp with us this week at Kinder Outdoors. Hey, welcome back to our camp house at Kinder Outdoors. I'm Billy Kinder. Thanks so much for hanging out with us throughout 2023. And, of course, we want to see you as a regular guest in this old camp house in the coming year, 2024. Happy New Year to you. Hope you uh, had a great Christmas time with your family and friends and uh, time to reflect on what the Lord has done for us and why we have Christmas in the first place. This corner of the campouse brought to you by Purina ProPlan. ProPlan is at Atwood's Ranch and Home Stores, but hey, I was at a Baumgars a few days ago, and yep, there was a whole aisle of ProPlan, all of those great formulas. As a matter of fact, ProPlan is everywhere that quality dog food is sold. Pick up the ProPlan formula that best suits your dog. Make the switch. I promise you, in just a couple of weeks, you'll start seeing a difference. Clearer eyes, cleaner teeth, more energy, a slicker, shinier coat, a healthier dog. ProPlan. Let's get back to our conversation now with one of the all-time greats, Lefty Cray. How many uh, presidents, United States presidents? Have well, you? I fished a number of times with Carter, and I was supposed to fish three different times with, with the older Bush. Uh-huh. And uh, twice he had to cancel, and once I had to cancel. But we yeah. did talk and meet and everything. In fact, I have a picture in my he sent me in my uh, front room of him casting, and he's left-handed too. Wow. And it, underneath, he wrote a nice thing about it, and then he wrote underneath there, please don't cast, criticize my casting style. <laughs> I thought he was a wonderful guy. I really did. Yeah. And Carter was, and, and him and the, actually he and the, his wife, Rosalind, both very, very nice people. Could they fish? Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, your wife is not impressed with you. <laughs> right. You know, she, she's just sitting on the toilet and everything else. Oh, she yeah. ain't impressed with you at all. <laughs> right. And three different times, Carter's group, when he was president, I only live an hour from Washington and an hour from Camp David, where it's a trout stream. Uh-huh. Three different times, they called and said, President Carter would like to fish with you. Well, I had talks to give her clinics, and I wasn't just going to say, well, the president called me, so I ain't going to do this because sure. they'd already advertised them. so three sure. times I couldn't go when I got off the third time my wife who I've been married to, uh, married to for almost 64 years and she's my best friend most of the time most of and the time. uh <laughs> I told her once love was blind and marriage is an eye opener but anyway <laughs> <laughs> she told me love was marriage of grand divorce is 500 grand so I <laughs> I've stayed for the 64 years but after I got off the phone the third time, she says, who was that? And I said, it was President Carter's people. So what did they want? I said, they wanted, they wanted me to fish with him. 
And she looked me up and down like I had worms and said, why would the president want to fish with you? you know? <laughs> Wives ain't too impressed with us. No, I don't know why they marry us and think we're the dumbest man on earth. I ain't never figured that out now, yet. We're in the same boat. I'm in the same boat right now with uh, with Lefty. I never thought I'd be in the same boat with you, but there we are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, Lefty, do you think that uh, your deceiver pattern will ever take off? You think people? <laughs> I think it will. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that has been quite a streamer, hasn't it? Yeah. Boy, yeah. It's uh, been yeah. fished all over the world. And yeah. People say, "Well, when did you invent it?" Well, you know, if you're a fly fisherman, you're constantly coming up with new flies. So, I don't know when I invented it, but I do know it was in the late 1950s. But it's been fished. It was on a postage stamp. 1991, the United States government yeah. uh, post office. Thought enough of your fly to give it its own postage. Yeah, and made me pay the same price for the stamps as everybody they else. Too. They, <laughs> they, they got didn't. no discount. <laughs> us does not mean U.S. I mean, U.S. don't mean us. <laughs> they didn't give you a free book of stamps. <laughs> they didn't give you anything. <laughs> didn't even give them a fly back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, now, you said earlier that your favorite uh, freshwater fish is the smallie. Right. And I, I think I know the obvious reasons, the fight. And what what are your reasons for loving the smallie? I think it's maybe because that's when I got started fly fishing. I started on smallmouth. My second favorite is uh, peacock bass, which you find mostly in the Amazon places. But I, also the largemouth has a big place in my heart. And uh, Bill, Bill invited me down here the first time. And... Uh, we caught so many bass, I just fell in love with the place. So oh, yeah. I love this part of Texas. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yep. And uh, the bonefish? That That's my favorite fish, yeah. Favorite overall? Yeah, I think it's it offers a lot kind of things. You can do a whole lot right and one thing wrong. You know, if the game's over, you got to go again. You don't have to fight them for 20 minutes. And a lot of, some, a few... Very experienced saltwater fly fishermen like tarpon pests, and they'll never get over that. But right. most experienced fly fishermen I know who fish in saltwater and have caught most everything will, in the end, say the bonefish they'd rather fish for than anything. Yeah. What uh, What do you see? I'm I'm a big quail hunter, raising trained bird dogs, and so I have my thoughts about what we need to do for the future of quail. What conservation efforts are, are you behind, and what do you see that we need to do for our fisheries? Uh, I think there's a number of things wrong. First of all, I used to be an exhibition shooter for Remington Arms, and I, I've done a lot of hunting, not just in this country but other places. Sure. I think the biggest thing problem with the future of hunting today is that when I was growing up, a guy who could get a triple on quail or a double on grouse or something like that was a hero. And to most children today who live in either cities or, or near cities, they don't hunt or fish. And they think a guy who kills birds is a killer. <clears throat> yeah. And so the biggest handicap I see to hunting today is that the future people, the young people, most of them do not regard hunting in a good light, they actually think we're weird people, or there's something wrong with us, or yeah. we're killers. And uh, I mean, they'll eat hamburger from somebody that killed a steer or a cow, but they they think somebody that kills a deer and eats it, something wrong with them. I really think that's the biggest problem of all. The other problem is that uh, hunting license and fishing license are what we're the people who really take care of the environment. The people who bought these hunting and fishing licenses and the people who didn't put 
very little into taking care of it. In fact, we're the ones that force the legislature to keep our rivers clear and our lakes clean, where the people get their drinking water and this right. sort of thing. And uh, if you don't, if you lose your hunters and fishers, you lose a part of the populace that really has been responsible for taking care of our resources. The other thing that really concerns me is that uh, in the Potomac, the Susquehanna, the Mid-Atlantic area where we have smallmouth rivers, 20% of our smallmouth male bass now have female eggs in them. Hmm. And uh, something that I think is the candle or the canary in the mine type of thing is that they found out that uh, when we take all these drugs, what we don't assimilate in our body goes through our sewage treatment plants. Hmm. And none of our plants are designed to cope for medicines. Right. And so all the estrogen that women transfer, all the all the type of medication we go, are all going into the drinking systems. And most of our big rivers now are responsible for, as the water systems for our larger cities. And it's not just in the east, it's all over the country. So what I'm wondering is, uh, I know I'm not going to get pregnant from drinking this water, but <laughs> but but I am I am concerned. What is the long-term effect? And and the EPA has just in the last year started to investigate this thing, and uh, we need to quickly understand what are all these medical problems that may occur because of this. I think that's another real problem that we have. Absolutely. Lefty Cray passed away in 2018, but just a few years before that, I had a golden opportunity to sit down with him in East Texas next to a managed lake that was full of largemouth bass and spend the afternoon just visiting. The result of that is what you're enjoying today on Kinder Outdoors. Brought to you by my friends at Joshua Creek Ranch, who invite you to bring the fly rod when you go bird hunting with them in the Texas Hill Country. But if you forget, hey, that's no big deal. They have a very well-equipped pro shop to take care of all of your shotgunning and fly fishing needs. Learn more about Joshua Creek Ranch at kinderoutdoors.com. Millions of crucial dollars have been produced through the years as a result of the DSC Convention and Sporting Expo in Dallas, and this January, we'll do it again. Join me, Corey Mason, DSC CEO, January 11th through the 14th at the K. Bailey Hutchison Convention Center in Dallas for one of the most important conservation fundraising events on the planet. Fabulous auctions, silent, in-person and online, banquet halls filled with like-minded outdoors men and outdoors women, and one-of-a-kind auction opportunities, more than 950 vendors featuring the very latest gear, clothing, outdoor-inspired art, and unique jewelry. Meet face-to-face -face with the most accomplished and accommodating outfitters from every place that you can dream of. New Zealand, Canada, Tajikistan, Idaho, or Mexico. The very best outfitters in the business will be at the DSC Convention and Sporting Expo in Dallas, January 11th through the 14th. More details are at biggame.org. If you ever stop just once in West Texas at the very unique Herdware store and visit with the very unique Cecil Miskin, you'll make it a regular stop every time you pass by. We are on US-287, which is one of the oldest and most major U.S. highways still. 
We are 40 miles south and east of Amarillo. H-E-R-D, Herdware Store. We've got bison leather goods, vests, chaps, dusters, and bison hide coats, bison leather belts and wallets, bison leather shoes, art. We've got western artifacts. We've got native artifacts. The only way we can describe it is all things bison. If you're not interested in bison, don't stop. If you're interested in bison, come on and plan on spending 15 minutes to two hours and enjoy yourself. The only rule that we have in the store, and we've had it for many years, and we've only had one person ever break our rule, is if you're not having fun, we're going to ask you to leave. The most unique stop between the Gulf and the Pacific, Cecil Miskin and the Herdware Store. Herdware.net. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. This is Kinder Outdoors. This is going to be a really interesting uh, series from the folks at Bass in 2024. It's a new seven-part series documenting the untold stories the history and the stories of the characters that built the sport fishing industry. It's called The Cast. It begins airing in early January on FS1, and I am looking forward to it. This is must-see TV for me. I will uh, have the DVR set and ready to go. Come see us at kinderoutdoors.com for more information about The Cast from Bassmaster. One of my favorite conversations through the many years of Kinder Outdoors was with fishing icon, fly fishing icon, Lefty Cray. We're recalling that conversation and enjoying an end-of-year cup of coffee with you today on Kinder Outdoors. You joined forces with uh, Temple Fork Outfitters a few years ago, yep. and uh, Temple Fork carries the uh, Lefty Cray line of rods. Mm-hmm. Good people to work with, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Yes. The... the one of the big problems has been why we have not got more people, both women and children, into fly fishing. It's been too expensive. Uh, it used to be 10 years ago there were almost no rods that cost less than four or $500. So if you had two kids and you wanted to get them into fishing, between the reels and rods you had way over $1,000 invested, and you didn't know whether they were going to like it or not. Yeah. The other thing is that... Um, uh, we really tended to make it a man's sport. And it's just, I do private lessons uh, at home on fly casting. It used to be that if a woman would come for a fly casting lesson, usually her boyfriend or her husband bought her and brought her, and they, she went along because he wanted her to. Yeah. What's happened the last few years is I've had lots of women who bring their boyfriends or their husband. In fact, uh, um, do you know who Wayne LaPierre is? Oh, yeah. Well, I uh, met a lady who was a very beautiful lady uh, in her 30s on a business deal, and we bonded, and my wife and I, in fact, well, I'm hit him with a story. We really liked her, and, mm-hmm. I went, and she loved fly fishing, and we fished together a number of times, and one day she called up, and she said, uh, I think I might marry this guy. Would you give him a fly cast lesson? Oh, sure, Susie. So she brings him up. 
this little short fellow named Wayne LaPierre standing around. I didn't know who the hell he was. And, and, uh, <laughs> you didn't know? Not then. And uh, she hooked the thumb over toward Wayne and said, if he don't learn to fly cast, he's out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne learned to fly cast, and they've, of course, I've been everywhere on the planet. And they said, where should we go? And they've been fishing in Africa and New Zealand oh, yeah. and South America. And they have a wonderful time. When you're the head of the NRA, you have opportunities. That's right. But the point is that uh, the area that's grown the, the most in fly fishing the last few years has been the introduction of women. And Temple Fork uh, has been making rods that are affordable for almost anybody, they've, they've got raw, some of their finest rod. In fact, we did a um, we did a test by taking some of the most expensive rod blanks, uh-huh. fly fishing blanks, and we took six of those and two temple forks, all blanks, sent them to Korea, had all the rods made exactly the same way, same handles, same fittings. The only difference was they had a code number. What we really wanted to find out was uh, what kind of action the customer wanted. We found out that people who are real good casters like fast rods, pretty good casters like slower rods, and people who don't fish a lot like an even slow rod. It turned out that uh, our cheapest rod was one of the most successful in, no. in the test, and we tested it all over. It also turned out the most expensive rod got the worst rating from everybody. Isn't that something? So money, the most expensive thing is not always the best thing. Right. So I think that uh, Temple Fork is in a mar- is matched the market for where we're at. The kids can now get a great outfit for seventy five, eighty dollars. Oh, that's great! What would you suggest to a, to a single mom or maybe a dad who hasn't fished since his dad took him when he was a kid, and they want to get their kids involved? What would you do with your kids? Take them to the Dallas Fly Fishers Club. They got one of the nicest clubs, and I've been in, given talks there a couple times, and they. They they will teach you fly casting. They teach you fly tying. They have uh, trips that they they create and sort of mentor the people going on the trips. Uh, it's and they and one of the the difference. I don't get me wrong. I'm not just a fly fisherman. If they won't take flies, I'm going to a Gitsit or a Cinco or something else. If they won't take that, I'm going to go to worms. I'm going to catch that fish one way or the other. So <laughs> I ain't one of them. Guys, you know it says that you got to use the underarm fur from orangutan from South Africa with Australian <laughs> possum and all that. I'm a, I want to catch fish. You're a fisherman, absolutely, and I want to catch fish. But um, the there is a difference between people who fly fish and other fishermen. If I'm fishing with a guy and we're catching a lot of, let's say we're catching a lot of them on Cinco's and some boat goes by. My buddy will stick his rod underwater when he's got a bass on there because he don't want nobody to know what he's catching them on. <laughs> but if you're on a, on a flash fly fishing and you're catching a lot of fish, or you're on, you're not catching any, the fellow down from you is catching so he'll come over and give you flies. There's a camaraderie there that doesn't exist with, uh, and it's not an elitist thing at all because. Yeah. Most fly fishermen they ain't got enough money to be elitist. You know? <laughs> right. They're like you and me. We're working for a living. Right. But there is a camaraderie. So when you join those clubs, uh, people are tickled to have you, and they share it, and they love uh, love helping kids to do these things, and they got programs for kids. So some single mother, also uh, 
there's a lot of nice guys in there that got money. So the wife, if it's a, if she's single, <laughs> she might find a husband there too. You are a piece of work, sir. Oh, I thought Bill was a guy's name. I got married. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Lefty, thank you so much. Oh. I, I really appreciate the time and. Uh, Good fishing to you this afternoon. Well, thank I, I, you. I know you're looking forward to your day. That's right. <laughs> what a joy hanging out with Lefty Cray for the day. We lost the legendary Lefty Cray back in 2018. He was 93 when he passed away in his native Maryland. When Robin and I pack up to visit our friends Joe and Ann Kerchival and Kevin and all the crew at Joshua Creek Ranch in the Texas Hill Country, of course we're taking the shotguns. It's the best bird hunting in Texas. Upland bird hunting on a five-star level. Orvis, shooting sportsman, Beretta, Federal Select. Everyone says, hey, Joshua Creek is the best bird hunting in Texas and one of the finest spots on planet Earth. But don't overlook the fly fishing. Joshua Creek, crystal clear, runs right through the middle of the place with native Texas Guadalupe bass and other species that lead to a lot of fly rod fun. A beautiful setting to spend the afternoon in the shade of those ancient cypress trees that were there when Sam Houston was governing Texas. It's a wonderful place. Go spend a little time there for yourself. Joshua Creek Ranch in Bernie, just outside of Bernie, northwest of San Antonio, about 45 minutes. You know, for a lot of people, when you think about a fly rod, you automatically think about trout. They go hand in hand, although the fly rod works well on most fresh and saltwater species. But looking back over my life, the fly rod has been left at home on most fishing trips, unless I was traveling to a trout stream. Then it was my first choice. Still is. But what about after we have those trout in the creel? That's when we turn to a pro like Master Chef John Bonnell. Master Chef John Bonnell back in the old camphouse kitchen with Big Billy Kinder Outdoors. And, uh, John, you know, if there's uh, one, one thing that's like in my top three favorite things to do, and that's to break out my fly rod in the summertime. And, because trout don't love it, live in ugly places, John. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I never met a trout stream that wasn't just absolutely gorgeous. That's exactly right. So once I pull those trout out, I've got a problem. I don't know how to prepare them. I either overcook them or I, they don't taste right. Help me out. One of the gentlest and easiest ways to cook a trout, because it is a, is a light, you know, flaky, delicate meat, is to poach them. Now, get some water going. That's about one-third white wine, two-thirds water. Season it well with salt. Get a little bit of lemon in there as well. Lower the trout in just as it starts to simmer. Not a full rolling boil, but just when the bubbles are starting, let them poach for about four to five minutes. Delicate, clean, beautiful stuff right there. And if you want to come visit John, uh, remember two things. Poach your trout, not your deer, and come see him. Tell, tell us where uh, Bonnie Ellis is located. And we're on Brian Irvin Road in the southwest side of Fort Worth, or you can check us out on the web at BonnellsTexas.com. If you're a Texan that favors the fly rod, you now have access to a premier location for rainbow trout fishing during the peak of the winter stocking season, thanks to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department's no-fee access lease on the Guadalupe River. Camp Huaco Springs between New Braunfels and Sattler. About a half mile of bank access between alternating pools and riffles on the Guadalupe. Or you could just book a little time with my friends at Joshua Creek Ranch. Stay five-star. Great dining, 
and that Guadalupe borders the ranch. We're all out of time. I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the time we've had together in this camp house today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Happy New Year. Come back and see us next time around. Till then, may God bless you and your vine.